0: There we go. Good morning. How are y'all doing? Pretty good. It is good to be back with y'all this morning. Turn to Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26. Uh, we missed, uh, missed being here over the last uh, couple weeks. I promise I would have rather been right here uh, preaching to you. Um, but uh, we, uh, of course, uh, got the virus in our home and I got it and we uh, got pretty sick, got a few lingering symptoms. Uh, one of those is I just get tired really quick, so I'm going to have to just uh, maybe stay chilled out this morning, can't get too excited. Uh, I'll try to stay there as much as I can, um, but I appreciate all your prayers. Uh, I lost my taste and smell. Uh, that's kind of weird. Some of you have experienced that. That hasn't come back yet, uh, so uh, not sure when it will come back. As long as it's back a little bit by Thanksgiving, I will survive. Right? If not, that will be a major test to my faith, but we'll get through it. Uh, But in all seriousness, uh, thank you all uh, for your prayers. And uh, there's some people really dealing with some challenges with this thing. And some of you have uh, family or friends. You may have people close or that you know that have died or who are very, very sick. There's people even in our church who are very sick right now. And um, and we need to pray for for those folks. And uh, and so we will. In fact, uh, I know we probably have a lot of folks tuning in. for that reason, being connected to that virus. And so if you are tuning in with us this morning, welcome. We're so glad that you're joining us and uh, worshiping with us at home or wherever you are. But uh, thank y'all. We appreciate our church family. I appreciate Brandon and and Ben for filling in and bringing the word powerfully. Appreciate uh, Daniel Butler brought a message on Wednesday night and just appreciate everybody chipping in and helping out. Uh, We have an awesome church family. Let's get in the word this morning. So Acts 26... Uh, Today, oh, another thing is uh, just calling our church to pray, Uh, not only with the virus and everything related to that, but there's so much that we need to be lifting up in prayer right now. I think of uh, just the mess going on in Afghanistan, uh, praying for our troops, praying for the people there. Uh, We need to lift that whole situation up uh, in prayer. And then also uh, folks who are in the path of that hurricane right now. We're here. uh, Things are pretty calm outside, and uh, there's some people who aren't in that same situation right now. We need to pray for those folks over there in the path of that storm. Uh, so uh, we'll be in Acts chapter 26 this morning, and um, this is actually, believe it or not, the 22nd uh, week of our study through Acts. We'll be landing the plane over the next uh, few weeks. I don't know if you're like me. My Bible's just kind of naturally falling open to Acts right now. I'm going to miss walking through this study together as a church uh, but we're just going to jump right in. So if you uh, stand with your Bibles open, I'm going to begin to read in Acts chapter 26. I'll begin to read in verse 13. Paul is in Roman custody at this time. He's given a defense before a king named Agrippa. That'll make a lot more sense as we move through this. And uh, Paul is explaining his conversion experience. This is the third time that he explains it in, as it's recorded in Acts. And so let's uh, pick up in Verse 13. Uh, It says this at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to this heavenly vision, but declared first to those to Damascus. In Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I had the help that comes from God. And I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people... Into the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus with a loud voice said, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent, Festus. But I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I'm persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice, for this hasn't happened in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said, in a short time, Paul, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Would you have a seat as I pray? Father, I thank you for this day. And Lord, we certainly lift up the different things happening in our nation. and We think about all those families, all those folks who are in the path of the hurricane. And Lord, I just pray uh, that you would keep people safe. Lord, I pray that, uh, Lord, there would be minimum damage. Uh, We know that there's already been a lot of damage, Lord. And I pray that those who are going to experience some possible devastating results from this storm, Lord, that you would use uh, the craziness of the situation to draw them to you. Lord, I pray for um, things happening elsewhere in the world, the things happening in Afghanistan. I think about our brothers and sisters in Christ who are there, who are exposed to great danger. And Lord, I pray that you would strengthen their faith. I pray you keep them safe. Lord, but at the same time, I know that there are believers there who will refuse to be silent for the cause of Christ and may suffer greatly. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use those situations, Lord, and their faithfulness for your glory. And, Lord, I pray for our leaders. Lord, I pray that wise decisions would be made moving forward and we lift that whole situation up to you. And, Lord, I pray as we get into your word this morning, Lord, as we look at what we have to learn in Acts chapter 26, Lord, I just simply pray this, that you would give us, a heart for the lost and the perishing in our community and in our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have really been paying attention, you know that we are in Acts chapter 26, which we've jumped a pretty big, we've taken a pretty big leap from where we left off a couple weeks ago. Brandon did a great job of preaching on Acts chapter 20. And here we are in Acts chapter 26. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to summarize everything that happened between Acts chapter 20 and Acts chapter 26, hopefully in about five minutes. All right, so buckle up and listen carefully. As you get into chapter 21, what Paul's doing is he's concluding his third missionary journey. He has a site set on Jerusalem. On the way there, he gets warned that there's trouble waiting for him uh, in Jerusalem. He kind of takes pit stop in Caesarea by the sea where he stays with Philip, uh, who has been there ministering for several years. Remember him back with the uh, Ethiopian eunuch, and that's where he landed at the end of that story, and he's been there ever since doing ministry. And so uh, they're in uh, Caesarea by the sea, that's where Agabus, who comes as a prophet and uh, comes in and uh, meets with Paul and takes his belt and wraps his belt around Paul's, uh, wrapped Paul's belt around Paul's hands and his feet. And Agabus, the prophet says, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem are going to bind this man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And Paul was like, thanks. That's very encouraging, Agabus. Thank you for reminding me of that. But it was true. And he heads on to Jerusalem. And he gets there, he gets to the temple and some Jews from Asia come in uh, to town and they go into the temple and they spot uh, Paul and they create a very chaotic scene and they get the crowd all stirred up. And in verse 28, it says that they were yelling, this is the man, talking about Paul who's teaching everyone against the people and the law in this place. And of course he wasn't, that wasn't true. Um, Those were uh, rumors and those were false accusations. But but regardless, they drag Paul out of the temple and they begin to beat the snot out of Paul. They begin to beat him up. They want to kill him. And the tribune, who's like the Roman commander, think mayor of the city, who's supposed to be keeping the peace, he sees what's happening. He runs in, he breaks up the fight, he he tries to create some order, he uh, arrests Paul, binds him in chains just to figure out what's going on. Uh, Paul, at that moment, as he looks at the chains around his hands, he's like, oh, Agabus hit the nail on the head there, yep, here I am, uh, in chains. And uh, as Paul's being escorted by soldiers, he stops and actually addresses the mob of people. And uh, he addresses them in Aramaic, and that makes them all kind of stop and pay attention. And he, there in Acts chapter 22, in his defense to the crowd, and he's really preaching the gospel, but he shares for the second time his conversion experience on the road to Damascus. And he gets to the part, as Christ is commissioning him to go to the Gentiles, and he gets to that part about taking the gospel to the Gentiles, and that mob that was quiet all of a sudden like yells out, and they erupt with anger. And and so the uh, the Tribune thinks, well, maybe if uh, we give Paul a flogging, maybe that will keep the mob at bay. And Paul pulls out his driver's license and's like, no, I'm a Roman citizen. Don't do that. And the Tribune's like, oh no, and he freaks out because that would have been very illegal to do. And so he doesn't flog him. In fact, he takes him to the Sanhedrin. He's like, maybe this Jewish, uh, you know. Uh, this group of jewish leaders can help kind of sort all of this out and it gets super intense there they get very offended by what paul says and uh, they cart him away back into the barracks and it says in verse 11 and this is very important that as paul's there in custody in jerusalem it says in verse 11 it says the following night the lord stood by paul and said take courage for you have testified facts about me in jerusalem so you must also testify in rome god's taking his preacher to rome well, the Jews make a pact that they're going to not eat or drink until they kill Paul, all right? So they make this pact with each other and they make this deal. We're not going to eat. We're not going to sleep. We're not going to drink until Paul's dead, which time out, religion makes you do some really stupid stuff, right? Think about what they're doing. They're saying, yeah, we love, we're so devoted to the law. And we so love the law of God that we're going to kill this guy for dishonoring the law of God that says don't kill people, right? It makes you do some really dumb stuff. Well, Paul's nephew hears that they have this plan, this plot to kill Paul. And so he goes, his nephew goes to Paul. Paul's like, go tell the tribune, tells the tribune, Tribune's like, we got to get you out of here. So he sends him 60 miles up the road to Caesarea by the sea with a big military escort uh, to keep him safe. He gets there. That's where Felix, the government, the governor lives. Uh, Caesarea by the sea was the Roman headquarters of the occupation of the forces of Palestine. So Felix uh, governs from that place. And so he's basically saying, Felix, you deal with him. So Felix has the high priest and some of their leaders come up to Caesarea by the sea and they have a little trial and Felix oversees that and they make their accusations and Paul refutes those and Felix is like, uh, there's really nothing here. He's an innocent man, but Felix is a coward. He doesn't want to set him free. He doesn't want to deal with the chaos that Paul's creating as a free man. So he literally stalls for two years. So Paul stays in Caesarea by the sea for two years in custody. Just time out, a little fun fact. It's during that two years, Luke would have been with him, remember, in prison. that prison. He'd had visitors come in and visit with him. Luke spent a lot of time talking to Paul. He spent a lot of time in those two years talking with Mary. He spent a lot of time in those two years talking with other eyewitnesses. And this is where Luke, in these two years, we think, gathers all the information that he needed to compile two works that are very important to us, and that's the Gospel of Luke and Acts. So Paul stays locked up for two years. Well, two years go by and Felix gets fired. He gets fired by Nero the emperor because Nero the emperor thought that Felix was a little too corrupt and a little too cruel of a leader, a little too violent. It's bad if you know anything about Roman history when Nero thinks that you're a handful and you need to step down. So he replaces him with a guy named Festus, Felix to Festus, fun names. And so Festus gets into this position and he's on the job for, if you look at the beginning of chapter 25, the very first verse, he is on the job for like three days and he it's a handful to deal in that area to govern the Jewish people. And so this Roman governor, he goes to Uh, Jerusalem to meet with these, uh, the Sanhedrin, and meet with these religious leaders, and and, and the immediate thing that they want to ask a favor about is about Paul. Two years have gone by. That's what anger does in your heart. Festers, that's all that's been on their mind. They're like, listen, we need you to release Paul, send him, or or send him back to Jerusalem, and we get, uh, you know, some information there that really they just wanted to go back to Jerusalem because they want to kill him. Festus says, no, no, calm down. I'm going back to Caesarea. Why don't you guys come down? We'll have a trial like Felix had. So they go to Caesarea by the sea. It's another trial, a lot like Felix had. They give their accusations. Paul refutes it. He's like, he's an innocent guy. I can't see anything that's wrong with him. But Festus sees that the Jews aren't happy. And he's like, hey, listen, Paul, how about we do this? How about we go back to Jerusalem? We'll have a trial with the Sanhedrin. I'll moderate it. And Paul's like, time out, stop. He goes, I've had it. He goes, you guys have been jerking me around a long time. I know what the Jews want to do to me. I know you're just being a coward. You know I'm an innocent man and you won't set me free. He goes, I appeal to Caesar. And Festus is like, all right, to Caesar you have appealed and to Caesar you shall go. Well, this puts Festus in a pickle because he has no legit charges to tack, tack on to Paul and he's got to send an official letter to the emperor. He doesn't want to like an idiot. He's got to put some charges in there if he sends him to Rome. Well, he's in luck because King Agrippa II is coming into town to pay a visit to the new governor, Festus. King Agrippa has some Hebrew blood. He knows a lot about Jewish life and Jewish law. And he is there in town and and maybe he can help him. If you know anything about the Agrippa, this should ring a bell to you. King Agrippa II was the son of who? King Agrippa I. Very good class, right? He's eighth and last in the line of the Herodian dynasty. The Herodian line. A line of little kings that uh, love through history afflicting The line of Christ, his great-grandfather was Herod the Great, the one killing the babies, you know, when Jesus was born. His uncle was the Herod who murdered John the Baptist and actually presided over Jesus' trial, which is very interesting to see the parallels between this trial of Paul and Jesus. He's walking in his master's footsteps. And his own father, Agrippa I, is the one who murdered James and put Peter in prison. And remember, he's the one who got eaten by worms. And now, Agrippa II is ruling in Israel. And he comes into town with his girlfriend, Bernice, or Bernike, And this is his girlfriend, and it's also his sister. Yeah, he's in an ancestral relationship. Later on, she becomes the mistress of the Roman emperor Titus. This is Bernice, who's gonna dismiss her. And these pagan Roman emperors, these guys were, they lived crazy lifestyles. But Bernice, uh, as history records, she got so crazy and immoral with her behavior, the Roman emperor Titus is like, you gotta go back to the provinces. Like this, You can't be here. Like, you're shocking me with your behavior, right? This, is, this would be some good reality TV if that had been around in ancient Rome. But Agrippa's very intrigued when Festus is like, hey, I got this guy, Paul. He's created this stir. I know you know Jewish law and Jewish life. And Agrippa's like, Agrippa loves, he, he, he loves to check out things like this. He's like, sure, I'd love to talk to this guy named Paul. So Festus sets up this, it's an unofficial hearing, but man, he, he brings out all the works. It's a spectacle. These ancient Roman leaders love to flex and flaunt their Roman power anytime they got a chance. So it says at verse 23 in chapter 25, So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall. So with instruments playing, just get this picture in your head, it's this big ancient theater. They're going to have this opportunity for Paul to defend himself in front of King Agrippa, and for King Agrippa to hear his defense, and to hopefully give Festus some stuff to write in the letter and send him to Rome. And so with the instruments playing, several thousand civil and military noblemen come filing in. I mean, it's a very serious uppity. You know, think pomp circumstance probably is playing in the background. All these military leaders come in dressed with their formal military outfits. And here comes Festus, the governor, robed in his scarlet because he didn't want to outdo King Agrippa who comes in after him. And everyone stands and Agrippa comes in with Bernice and their clothes from head to toe in purple. And of course, they're probably lavishly covered in gold. And the music stops. And here comes little Paul. Tattered prison outfit. Chains hanging off of his arms and his legs. You can probably hear the metal clanging against each other. And he takes his place in his spot before the most powerful leaders in that land and is handed the mic and begins to talk. And that's where we're at in Acts chapter 26. And the question is, is why does Luke include all of that? There's no. When I was studying this, uh, you know, a lot of Bible teachers just go from 20 to 28. They don't even mess with this area right here. They summarize it very quickly and just move on. What's what's so important about 21 through 26? Why is it here? Why did he include it? Well, one reason is this: Lucas is going the extra mile to put this into this this is a piece of literature, which is God's word, so that Gentile believers who would feel a lot of pressure not to bow their knee to any other Lord except Caesar, to encourage them, to help them know that what you are doing when you become a Christian, that this is not a troublemaking religion, that the best thing this world could have are, is more Christians. And so he's making the point, hey, Paul's an innocent man. This is not a troublemaking religion. Well, the second thing that Luke is doing is he's going the extra mile to put Paul in in, in Acts and to document these different trials to help those of us who are believers at any given time in the history of the world know what it looks like to bear witness to the gospel faithfully. Paul shows us what it looks like to bear witness to the gospel faithfully, whether it's in a prison cell or standing before the most powerful people in the world. And we're going to see four very quick things about what it looks like to be an effective witness. And the first thing is this. If you're going to be an effective witness, you've got to have a confidence in the providence of God. A confidence in the providence of God. I mean, Paul, look at his life. This dude is is experiencing one bad day after another bad day. And it's like after he came to Christ, things got worse. One bad day after another. And yet in the middle of all that, he's confident that every moment of his life, even the bad days, every trial, every conflict, every act of persecution, that all of it falls under the perfect reign and the perfect rule and the perfect, perfect careful governance of Jesus Christ who's guiding his life. And I'm sure like God's provision like felt strange at times to Paul. Like I'm sure that Paul could think of much better ways in his mind than a series of jail cells to get him where God wants him to go, where God wants him to share different things, which is ultimately to Rome. We know that, right? Like He's got to be thinking, God, just give me a ticket on a greyhound. Can you get me to Rome in a little less crazy way? God's ways are not our ways. And God in his providence found a better way, a better plan for Paul's life, And it was through his suffering and through his brokenness and through the growth and through the humility that he grew in through those experiences that he's going to be able to share Jesus in a way that will have a better better impact, a bigger impact on eternity than he would have had had he um, not gone through those things. When you're confident in and when you trust in God's sovereignty, listen, it changes the way that you react to your environment. When you are confident in the sovereignty of God, it will change the way that you react to your environment. You see it in Paul. Instead of Paul in those moments where he doesn't feel like he's getting a fair shake, where he doesn't feel like he's being treated well, what does he do instead of reacting with anger, instead of reacting with complaining, instead of arguing with the people and the men and those corrupt leaders who are right in front of him, instead it opens his mind because of his confidence in the providence of God to all kinds of different possibilities, like seizing those moments to get close to those powerful leaders so that he can seek to reach them with the gospel. Listen, there is a, there's a big lesson right here for us to learn in these days. There's a big lesson for us to learn where we're at right now, and it's this, and I want our church to be continuously reminded of this, that there's nothing happening in our world right now at this moment that is outside of the parameters and the perfect rule and reign and careful governance of Jesus Christ. Jesus is on his throne. Like our God is in control. His promises never fail. And some of you are are feeling the... The difficulties of life that are closing in on you. You feel it in the world. You feel it in your own life. And there's a lot you can learn from the way the Apostle Paul leaning in and trusting in the providence of God sees his environment in a different way. And if you too will look at the promises of God that never fail. If you'll look back over your shoulder and let your heart be reminded that the God who has always been faithful to you. Whose plan has always been perfect along the way. And let his past faithfulness and perfect providence speak prophetically in your life. It will impact your present faithfulness that God's called you to in this moment. It'll change the way that you react to difficult situations that you face. I mean, we need to preach that to our hearts. We need to preach that to our hearts. We need to preach that to other people. Hey, parents, we need our kids not only need us us to model this in front of them, they need to hear it from us. They need to hear from us that we believe that Jesus is on his throne. They need to hear us be honest about situations in the world. They need to hear us say things like my kids have heard me say that, hey, the the, the government leaders aren't making good decisions. Hey, there's people in our life who are suffering and it's sad, I man. People are dying from this virus. Our plans have been completely, maybe you're like, hey, my plans have been completely flipped upside down. Hey, dad lost his job. Hey, a lot's going on in the world right now. And I feel emotions about this and I feel mad about this and I feel upset about this and I feel frustrated about this and I feel stressed about this, but we're not staying there. We're going to be a family of prayer. We're going to trust God because we know he's still in control. We're going to keep our eyes fixed on him. And we're going to represent our king who's on his throne well in these days. We're going to trust that God is growing us through this, that he's teaching us through this. And because that we're going through this, we're going to have opportunities that we would not have had had we not gone through it to point people to Jesus Christ. We got an opportunity, church, we got an opportunity, Christian, to walk through difficult times right now as circumstances are squeezing us tightly to produce fruit that are, that are consistent with biblical repentance. We have opportunity to show people in a world that are experiencing the same struggles and the same difficulties what it looks like to walk through those things with a peace and with a love and with a confidence that someone is in control. And his name is Jesus. Have confidence. I'm telling you, have confidence in the providence of God. And it will diminish stress in your life. Hey, you don't have to bear the weight of the world's problems on your shoulders. You can cast your anxieties on the Lord whose shoulders are big enough to handle all of it. You can trust the God who has the whole world in his hands. It will give your soul rest. It will calm anxieties. And I'm telling you, you'll see your your difficult environments differently. You'll see them as God using them to open up doors of opportunity to minister to people. Second thing is this. When you have those opportunities, we see in Paul that we need to be committed to a clarity in our presentation of the gospel. This is so important. A clarity in our presentation of the gospel so notice Peter's, or Paul's kind of sharing his story. He's, he's giving his conversion story account, and he's sharing that in front of King Agrippa, but he's also like preaching the gospel to Agrippa. It's very clever. And so this, this reminds us right here of as he lays this out, we see elements of the gospel in the speech that he's giving before Agrippa that must be part of our gospel presentation when we talk to people who are lost about who Jesus is. And it involves a few things, and we saw it right there as we read Number one, it's this. When we talk about clarity in the presentation of the gospel, number one, we see Paul showing us that it involves God opening spiritually blind eyes to see. Verse 18 says, I'm sending you to open their eyes. Verse 23 explains that Jesus has come to suffer and die on the cross and raise from the dead to proclaim light both to the people, the Jews and the Gentiles, which means the whole world. In other words, becoming a Christian can only happen if the light of Christ shines into your life through the power of the Holy Spirit in such a way that it opens up your spiritually blind eyes to see things that you haven't seen before. To see first who God is, to see God as the holy Creator God who's worthy of all of our lives and worthy of all of our praise, but to also see ourselves clearly, dead in our sins. Ephesians chapter two, verse one: "Wretched, black-hearted rebels of God, belonging to a domain of darkness, deserving of cell of hell, deserving of eternal separation." Unworthy, depraved, seen our, that the light of the gospel shows us that that we're naturally born worshippers of ourselves. We see that when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to it, that we're helpless, that we're hopeless that we can't do anything about it on our own, that I can't wash the sin stain off of my heart on my own. But what the light of the gospel also does is it doesn't only show you who God is, doesn't only show you in light of that who you are, it also shows you that God didn't leave you in that mess, but he sent his son to live the life you can't live and to die the death you deserve to die on the cross and to raise from the dead and to send a substitute that you can believe in that can save you from that situation that your eyes have been opened to and you understand that you're in. And when that happens, there's a third part of it, and it's a turning from your sins. Verse 18, that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. So it involves eyes opening, seeing the light, the light shining on us. understanding who we are in our sin, understanding God sent Jesus to die in our place. And then there's a turning, and then there's a receiving, a turning from your sin. Verse 18, what it means is at the cross, you turn from darkness and you turn to Christ. It means at the cross, you're turning from being consumed with your dreams, consumed with your life, with you on the throne of your own heart. You're turning from a mindset of I'm okay without a savior. You're turning from from a mindset of of, of, I'm religious and I think it counts for something to you turning to Jesus Christ as your only hope for salvation. Salvation. It's turning from one way of seeing your sin, one way of seeing this life, one way of seeing the world, to turning and focusing your life on Jesus Christ. Listen, if we preach a gospel that doesn't involve a turning away from sin, it is not a gospel found in the Bible. If we think we can find a Savior without forsaking our sin, you don't know what kind of Savior that he is. Jesus is not a good luck charm. Jesus is not just something you add to your life that you hope is going to make it a little better. Jesus is not a janitor that you invite into your life to clean up a mess that you made. He's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. And when you understand that you're a sinner separated from a holy God, listen, you turn from your sins and you hand the keys of the house which is your life over to that master and you bow your knee to him as king. That's biblical repentance. Repentance. And the third part of it is this. You receive forgiveness in a place with God. You receive forgiveness in a place with God. And the gift that we receive in the posture that I just laid out, laid out is forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness of sin. Like he takes your sin, your past, your present, your future sin, selects all, drags in, drops and drags it into the recycle bin and empties the trash. You receive a satisfactory substitute for your sins. You receive full adoption into the forever family of God. You receive a robe of righteousness that covers you. A a position change to where forever you're seen through the precious, spotless blood of Jesus Christ. Through the eyes of God. You receive new life. You receive a new purpose. You receive new appetites. You receive new identity. And that is amazing news. And that is an amazing reality for those who have been brought out of a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. Yeah, some of you are like, oh, cool. Yeah, all right. No, that's amazing news. And it's an amazing offer. Like Paul, we get to go out into this dark world and lay before lost people who are wandering in darkness, who are wandering in their sin. And you know what Paul does? I love this. It's it's, it's practical help right there. Paul shows us that As we go out as evangelists this week, did you know that you have a very powerful tool in your toolbox that may have a little dust on it? And you know what it is? It's your story. It's your testimony of how those three things have happened in your life. Hey, how my eyes were opened to the beauty of Jesus Christ, my sin, and then the beauty of the cross, how you turned from your sin, how you received new life. And Paul lays all of that out in his own story in that theater for all of those people to hear. This is the third time that he's laid this story out. He describes his conversion story, explains who he was before Jesus, explains that he was like the Jewish boy wonder of that that part of the world. Everybody knew who he was. Scholars think he was probably part of the Sanhedrin. He talks about how he passionately was devoted to Judaism to the point where he was at one point inflicting terror on the church and on Christians, killing Christians but how he met the resurrected Savior and how it changed everything. Don't hesitate and be afraid to share your past before you came to Jesus Christ. You don't have to hide from it. It doesn't mean we revel in it. It doesn't mean we sit around and share unnecessary details about who we were flippantly before we came to Christ. I grew up in Jacksonville. I'm a Jacksonville kid. So you go around Jacksonville, you may run into somebody who knew me in high school. I came to Christ at the end of high school. And you may come in here one Sunday and go, hey, I ran into one of your buddies from high school. He said that y'all did this. I'll be like, well, sit down and I'll tell you about it. I'm not gonna hide from it. But you know what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take that story and I'm gonna take you to Christ with it. Because that's what Jesus did with me. He took my story and he led me to himself with it. Don't be afraid of your past. It doesn't define you and it can be used as a powerful tool as you seek to be an evangelist. If you have a testimony, share it. If you don't have a testimony, you can leave here with a testimony today. Maybe you've heard the gospel. Maybe you've understood what the gospel is, but yet you're resisting. There's something that that Paul shares in this account that's not in any of the other three accounts, other two, two accounts. And it's in verse 14. He shares what Jesus said to him. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads, not goats, goads. All right, that's a sharp stick. Shepherds would use that to push and encourage livestock to move along. You know, you poke the, the animal, you try to get them to go in a new direction. And Jesus saying, Jesus saying this, Paul, you know I've been prodding you for a while. You know my spirit's been knocking on the, the on your on the door of your heart for a while. I believe that the sticking with the goads and that Jesus knocking on his heart began that day that he approved of the murder of the first Christian martyr in the church. He stood there as a coat rack holding other people's coats they wouldn't get blood on it and approved as a religious leader of the murder of Stephen. And he stood there and watched as Stephen, literally his skull was being crushed in, probably choking on his blood. And Stephen, as his life was being squeezed... Remembering the words of his Savior whose life was being squeezed. He says, Father, forgive them. That's stuck with him. And I believe that was the moment that the Holy Spirit began to knock on the heart of Paul. Maybe some of you, somebody's example in your life, the way that they walk with Jesus. Jesus is using that to knock on the door of your heart. There's other ways that he knocks. Sometimes he knocks through Emptiness that everybody experiences apart from Christ. The emptiness that will make you lay awake at night and think about what your purpose is and think about what this world is about and to wonder why you're here. Did you know that's unique to human beings? Did you know no other part of creation does that? We're made in the image of God and that's what makes us different. Right, I've never been walking through my house and seeing one of my dogs. I got two dogs with their little paws on their head going, you know what, I just, I chase Frisbees and I chase my tail and I bark like a maniac at nothing in our our home. And I just feel like there's gotta be more to life than this, living life in this home. What is life about? Never. Only people do that. Ecclesiastes 3.14 says, he shows us why. There's a void inside of the heart of man and woman. That just can't be filled right apart from Jesus Christ and apart from God. And yet we try to fill it with all kinds of different things that fail to satisfy and fail to fulfill. He often knocks through that. He often knocks through the fear of dying. Death is all around us right now. Death is on everybody's mind. Hey, we try to avoid it. We try to ignore it. But deep down, we hope, we hope all of us don't have to experience it. Be it deep down, we know we have to. And if you haven't faced that fear, like the stats are not in your favor. They're not good. It's one out of one people die. It's gonna happen. And it doesn't matter. You can look at our culture and all the, the measures people take to try to slow that process down, man. And it doesn't matter how much plastic surgery you get, how, much, how good you eat. You're like, hey, I'm sorry, pastor. I don't know if this is for me. Like I, I, I do a lot of pushups. I drink a lot of seaweed smoothies. Uh, I don't eat McDonald's, right? I just, I'm, I'm, try to, I'm gonna try to avoid it. I'm gonna try to get around it, Right? Well, the first thing I'd say is you're missing out. McDonald's french fries are pretty delicious. (laughs) All of that will not change the fact that you are not going to live forever. You have an appointment with death one day. Every single one of us do. We have an expiration date. When you think about that, what happens is Christ knocks on the door of your heart. And some of you still kick. Kick against the goads. Some of you, in your mind right now, it's like, I don't want to think about that. You know, I, I don't, I'm not even sure. I, I think probably religion's a crutch. I don't need it. I'm my own person. I can't believe in a God who lets all this crazy stuff happen. I don't know how y'all do. I don't. Hey, I know a guy who died and didn't know Jesus Christ. There's no way God could send him to hell. But what if Jesus actually rose from the dead? That's what we're talking about. What if Jesus actually defeated the thing that everybody's scared that they're going to inevitably know that they're going to have to experience and that's death? What if he actually rose from the dead? Wouldn't it make sense to listen to him? Wouldn't it make sense to to bow your knee to him as king and follow him? Wouldn't it make sense to stop kicking against the goat if that actually happened? If he breathed in that new life and walked out of that tomb over 2,000 years ago? That's exactly what Paul is trying to persuade that audience to believe. And it's what we're seeking to persuade people to believe. Not just with your testimony. Not just with saying the right words and putting all the pieces together. But he uses the main tool that we use and that's God's word. He points them in that moment to God's word. He points to them how the Old Testament all points to Jesus Christ. How all of human history points and hinges on and pivots on something that happened outside of Jerusalem over 2,000 years ago when Jesus was crucified, buried, and rose again. He's rooting all of his argument in Scripture, showing that all of the Old Testament, the prophets pointed to that. Paul shows us that being an effective witness is being clear, it's being biblical. And it's also going to take courage, a courage in the presence of intimidation and criticism. Because God calls us in the places that are not easy to share the gospel. I want you to just think about, just get the picture in your mind. Think again. We're in the theater filled with royal, important, powerful people. He's standing before these, these big rulers, Festus and King Agrippa. And there Paul is, and we have a second century extra biblical source that explains to us, uh, gives us a description of Paul. It's the only one we have. It says he was short, it says he was bow legged, it says he was bald, it says he was, had a unibrow. Sad looking dude. And he was probably squinting because his eyesight was bad. And here is this little Middle Eastern guy named Paul in the middle of all of this power and all of this royalty. And he doesn't bat an eye. And he shows us what it looks like to have humble boldness in the middle of criticism and intimidation. Think about it. This powerful leader, Festus, he butts in. He, Paul's gotten to the, he, poor guy can't finish a sermon, right? He gets to the part about the resurrection. And he's going strong. And Festus butts in and cuts him off. That's like the worst thing you want to happen during a sermon, right? Somebody just to cut you off. He's on a roll. And Festus steps in and says, Paul, you're out of your mind. You believe this, Jesus came and he was buried and he rose again. And all the Old Testament prophets point to him. Your great learning is driving you mad. And he insults him. Just says, Paul, you're out of your mind. You're, basically, you look at the language. This is insulting. He's basically saying, you're nuts. The cheese has slid off the cracker, my friend. You've read too many books. You're one chalupa short of a Taco Bell combo meal. You need some help. That was funny. Why didn't you laugh at that? I worked all week on that, and really, at Three Chuckles. Thanks a lot. Seriously, Paul, calm, collected. I love this. Calm, collected, courageously talks back to Festus, and he says, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. Where does that kind of courage come from? You can draw a line, listen back to point one to help you make a point or to help uh, you understand where it came from. You can draw a point back to the, the truth that God's sovereign and, and confidence in the, in the providence of God, and that can help. But listen, there's something that happens when you truly believe with your heart gospel truth that will free you from two paralyzing fears, and that's the fear of what people think, and that's the fear of death. This is a man who has an audience of one. This is a man, listen, who is convinced. This is a man who's convinced. He's going to die soon. He doesn't know when he's going to die, but he knows his life's probably going to be taken because of his commitment to the gospel. He doesn't know when that's going to happen, but this is a man who's completely convinced because he believes the gospel is true and believes Jesus rose again. He's completely convinced that if the worst thing happens to him in life, which is death, that it'll instantly become the best thing that'll ever happen to him because he'll step into the presence of his Savior. It's hard to discourage a guy like that. It's hard to intimidate a guy like that. In fact, look what he does next. He moves from Festus and turns to King Agrippa. They would have gasped in that theater. You don't do that. You shouldn't even be talking back anyway, Paul. And he turns from Festus and turns to Agrippa. And he, and he looks at Agrippa, this, this powerful king. And he says, king knows, King, knows what i talking about. He said, and, and to him I speak boldly for I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has been, this has not been done, in a corner. King Agrippa was eight years old when Jesus Christ died on the cross. Agrippa knows about Jesus. He's saying, Agrippa, you know this isn't a cult. You know, this isn't something where some religious quote-unquote leader went into the woods and came out with some private revelation he got from God, and now he's leading a group of people. This all was done in public. Jesus did miracles in public. He lived a perfect life in public. He went to the cross and was crucified in public in Jerusalem in a major city, and then he was, he was raised from the dead, and he publicly appeared, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, in front of 500 people at one time. You know, that should encourage you this morning. As you face intimidation, some of you students face, you're going to face intimidation on college campuses, in your high school, middle school, adults in your workplaces, around your family, around your friends, in this culture who are going to criticize your faith in Jesus Christ, who are going to think that you are crazy. In this right here, it gives us confidence and it gives us encouragement in that the Christian faith isn't a crazy faith. You don't have a tin hat on this morning. Your faith is reasoned and it's reasonable. Your God is not an imaginary friend. He's not a crutch for needy people. He is the one and only true living God and evidence of his existence through the revelation of scripture is overwhelming. And if you haven't come to Christ, listen, you need to know this. You need to know that it takes faith in Christ, but it isn't blind faith. It's true and rational words. Last thing as we close is a caring spirit for perishing people. What does it take to be an effective witness? A caring spirit for perishing people. I want you to look at how King Agrippa is wooing. I'm sorry, Paul is wooing King Agrippa. In verse 27, he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Paul's, I think the tone of Paul's voice probably changed. King you believe the prophets. I know you know what the prophets have said about the Messiah. Listen, I know that you believe. It's getting personal. I know what you believe. He asked him a question and King Agrippa, like a good politician, doesn't answer the question. He asks a question back to avoid the question. It's almost like he's in a daze. You know, Paul's leading him along. It's almost like King Agrippa was leaning in and listening. It's almost like that there was a knocking on the door of his heart and all of a sudden he snaps out of it. What, What is that? What is that? Little Paul, his tattered prison outfit? You thought you were gonna persuade me to become a Christian? And Paul says, whether short or long, I would to God, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. Accept these chains. I love that. He's like, wait a second, Paul, you're trying to convert me? And Paul says, got me. But not just you. I'm trying to convert everybody in here. I love this. Think about it. You got a, a guy in prison, a guy in shackles, Telling a bunch of guys who are free, who are powerful, who are rich, and who are famous, I wish you—I wish you guys had what I got, what I have, except for these chains. In other words, hey, I know I look like I ain't got nothing, but listen, I got everything. You guys have everything, and you have nothing. Oh, I wish you knew the Savior that I know. Oh, I wish you knew the peace and the rest and the freedom and joy for your soul. And listen, our community is filled with King Agrippa's. Our community is filled with festasis, people who may be rich, people who may be poor, but who are broken and desperate for hope and for love and for healing and for light. And there are, listen, there are people whose God's spirit is working on in your workplace, in your office, in your neighborhood, in this community, and they need saved people who care about perishing people to go and tell them about Jesus Christ. People like Paul. A sinner saved by... Listen, this is what made him an effective witness. He stayed swept away by the truth that the sovereign God of this universe looked down at him in his mess and came and found a rebel sinner like him and brought him to new life and not only brought him to new life and gave him a ticket to heaven, used him to make an eternal impact on this planet for the glory of that God. He never got over that. And as a found person, he spent the rest of his life finding people. Found people, find people. That's what we do. And God's going to open up doors of opportunity this week for you to seize and point people to him. I want to end by just gathering just to, just don't close up your mind yet. I just want to shoot off some application because I don't want this just to be something that we uh, go, okay, got that, and move on with our week. But I really want to see us all leaving this place and seeking to be effective witnesses. And I think these are some things that, that, that help. We're just going to gather up some application. Number one is, as you talk with people about Jesus Christ, shoot for gospel conversations. Listen, if you try to stick to a script, people will smell that from a mile away. And what it means is you need to know God's word. And you need to, in your own conversation, you need, you need to be able to talk with people about those elements that we talked about earlier. Number two is, don't be afraid to share your testimony. Express what it's like to not believe. Identify with people. Talk about your life when you kicked against the goats. Number four, make sure your life backs up the message that you're proclaiming. Number five, important, remember you are a witness, you're not the judge. Remember Jesus told Paul, he said, hey, uh, I'm calling you to be a servant, a witness, not a servant and a judge. You're like, well, my spiritual gets more of a judge, I'm more judgy, right? Well, that's not your job, you're to be a witness. Bear witness to Jesus Christ. Number five, address unbelievers respectfully. Peter said even to do it with gentleness and respect. Next, don't see people as projects or as numbers. People are made in the image of God, imprisoned by sin, broken, in need of grace. Next, don't be surprised when you're criticized or mocked. Jesus was, so don't be surprised as you follow him when you are as well. Remember this, that God is the only one who can save people. The Holy Spirit is the only one who can open up blind eyes to see and can save people. We sow the seeds. Did you know Paul preaches an amazing sermon and there's no sign that there was any fruit shown that day. Altar call happens and there's, a, there's crickets. I think I heard a cricket a second ago happening. Did you hear it? Okay, I'm not crazy. I was going to say something, but I thought it was just me. But he gives an altar call and there's no response. In fact, the, I mean, a home run of a sermon, and you know what the result was? The king that he was wooing and drawing in goes out with, with Festus and goes, hey, there ain't nothing really, you know, he's an innocent guy. I mean, it's kind of sad that he appealed to Caesar. Guess you have to send him on. And they move on about their day and their business. Paul doesn't lose sleep over that because he knows that he's in the, plant, the seed planting business. One day, maybe we'll know how many people in that theater came to know the Lord because of that sermon. But that's an encouragement to us. God is only the one who can save people. And then the last thing is this, pray for people that you're seeking to reach. Paul reminds us of this. We're reminded of this in other places in scripture. God is calling you to reach people and often you know who those people are right now. And we're to pray for those folks. You are the result. Your salvation is the result of someone's prayer. Prayer is powerful. So we pray for people. And if you're here this morning and you're kicking against the goats and the Holy Spirit is knocking on your heart, stop kicking. Stop kicking. Some of you are in that posture of kicking. You're like my kids. We like to play like with your kids, the little game where you, you tap them on the shoulder and they turn to look at you and you tap them on the other shoulder and then they look and go, ha ha, I gotcha. And then after a while, they get too cool for school and you try to do it and they, they just look straight. They ain't gonna do it. Tapping, they're not going to acknowledge that you're there. And for some of you, the Holy Spirit has been knocking on the door of your heart. And like my kids in that little game, you're pretending like it's not happening. And yet you know that he's there. And I would just urge you to bow your knee to him as king. Admit your sin. Turn from your sin and your wicked ways in the life you've tried to live without him. Throw the full weight of your faith on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Believe he died on the cross in your place, rose from the dead. Believe it with all of your heart. Throw all in with faith with him. Receive him as your king and your life will never be the same. Stop kicking against the goats. Next week we're going to be sailing to Rome. We're going to be following Paul's story of him sailing to Rome. This week we're going to stop here. And pray that God opens up doors of opportunities to bear witness for him. Let's pray.